out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Yes, we do. This week, it's going to be the turn of Dodgy, because I recently spoke to their drummer, Matt, or Matthew, priests to find out more about life love poetry and all the other groovy stuff anyway after several minutes several minutes of casual chat we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years i know it's a classic isn't it anyway matt take it away tell us everything tell us now i was lucky i, I had a um i had a brother that, well my dad had a, a very good record collection he, lo- he really loved his music um and had to have some great records some um Otis Redding, original albums from the 60s, uh, Wilson Pickett, <clears throat> uh, but as well as things like Summer Garfunkel and Sly and the Family Stone and, um, and yeah, just loads of stuff. But my brother, he's, um, I'm sure he's on the spectrum. He's, he's got to be. Uh, he, he, he collected um, every single vinyl release by Japan, Bauhaus and The Jam bizarrely mm-hmm. uh, so th- yeah exactly they, they, those three bands um so I, I knew all of them inside out um and uh, and he loved northern soul as well so i was introduced that introduced to that at an early age um but i suppose the first <coughs> craze that, that that i could really got into when i dressed for it <coughs> was tuto um, right. and because uh, that came at you know, nine, 10, 11 years old for me. Um, so it's bands like The Beat and The Specials and Madness. Um, and uh, and yeah, and the Harriton jackets and two-tone. I wanted a two-tone suit. I never got a two-tone suit, but I had uh, the black and white um, loafers. And so, yeah, um, because it was a great fashion as well um, to go along with it. And I, w- I was in Birmingham. I, uh, I'm, I'm from Birmingham. So uh, two-tone in a way that was the Midlands was where it kind of all started, really. Um, wow, yes. So That's- we, um, go on. I was just going to say, I did an interview with a person, a person from Birmingham last week, David Twist, or Dave Twist, who was, who's just done a compilation of Birmingham underground music from 1978 to 1982, which featured lots of obscure Birmingham bands from that period. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Called, oh, brilliant. It's, um, it, to give it its full title, it's something of the nature, yes, this is, Unseen, which is, um, yes, that's it really, Birmingham. But it does feature a lot of interesting bands and various members of Duran Duran being in sort of very small little combos before they became Duran Duran. So Birmingham did have a, a very vibrant music scene. Well, it had the, it, it, um, it had the Rum Runner, um, which was a, um, it was while the uh, Blitz Club was going on in, um, in London, uh, Steve Strange and Boy George and all that, um, the uh, Birmingham had the rum runner, and uh, and that was the same kind of idea. Lots of um, you know, outrageously dressed people, new romantic, the start of new romantic, um, and it came out, which a lot of these nights did, was a Bowie tribute night where yeah. there would be where all people that were basically into David Bowie would be going and they'd be hearing lots of Bowie um, and Roxy music, and and then. The, the emergence of the new romantic stuff with Visage and Depeche Mode and Human League and um, and all that wonderful stuff as well. Um, so Birmingham, yeah, it had that scene going on, the new romantic scene, 
it had obviously the heavy rock and the new wave of British heavy metal. Um, and it had all that, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, obviously the original metal bands. Um, and then it had a lot of the two-tone stuff as well. Um, but and, and it had a fantastic venue called the Birmingham Odeon, um, which unfortunately, I think, I think it's not even an Odeon anymore, but that stopped having bands, unfortunately, in the 90s, because I saw so many bands at the Birmingham Odeon. Um, it was just where you'd go, you know, you'd go into town on a Saturday and you'd go to the Odeon, you'd look up. A sort of ticker tape, you know, what bands are coming up and ABC, Depeche Mode, uh, Duran Duran, and, and you know, oh, yeah, I'll have a ticket for Depeche Mode, please. And uh, and I saw the Beastie Boys with um, with Run DMC there, I saw the Colt there. It's It was just, you know, a great place. But then when Dodgy became famous in the 90s, uh, it, it had closed down and Birmingham didn't actually have a half decent venue it was really strange it was you know you go around and you play rock city in nottingham or you know you play the princess charlotte in leicester or all countless venues in london but you go to birmingham and there wasn't a good medium-sized venue bizarrely you'd have to play aston villa, aston villa leisure center which was shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah i always remember john peel talking about the princess charlotte the these harlow square yeah. Those classic, um, what's the other? There's one in Leeds, isn't there? The huge Duke well, York, which closed down, unfortunately. Yeah, but yeah. oh, yeah, we played we played that, uh, you know, uh, Moles in Bath. Um, god, what's that place in Southampton? Oh, um, oh, I'll get shot for this, I'm forgetting whether the one in Southampton, but um, oh, yeah, it, it, it was the circuit, it the was forum the circuit. In, a little. The forum, a little. Yeah, the Forum in Tunbridge Wells and, uh, yeah, f fun memories of all those places. Yes. So when did, so your parents obviously were quite hip to a good music, I don't know, enthusiasm, didn't they? I mean, my parents were really into quite dodgy, uh, dodgy um, country and western, like Boxcar, oh. Willie, Jim Reeves and people like that. So it was, oh, a, bit, it was a bit tricky. So, you know, you could imagine my enthusiasm, because I had an older brother, like a bit like you probably, who was seven years old and he was into sort of prog rock, like, you know, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barclay, James Harvest. He was that generation, but he did have Black Sabbath and Deep Purple as well thrown in. So that was kind of my early musical moment. So having the jam, Japan, and then sort of um, Bauhaus was a bit different, really, wasn't it? You were yeah, there. a bit weird. Yeah. Bit, but but when did you think I want to be a musician and sort of pick up, you know, the drums? Um. It was it was the aesthetic of it first of all. It, it was the look of them. I'd, I'd sort of go to shows with mum and dad in the black country was where we lived, you know. And, and I'd always be looking at the drummer and and it, uh, and I'd go on telly, you know, look on telly and, and see bands on telly. And it was just the look of it from the age of about seven or eight. The hi hat, this, this, these two symbols that were clamped together, and and it, I just had this urge. It was a real. Um, tactile urge to, just to hit them and, and I love the idea that you, your feet did something different to your hands and shiny and different noises and, and I love that and I, and I asked for a drum kit and mum bought me a snare drum <laughs> <laughs> bought me a snare drum for my 10th birthday hoping that would shut me up yes. um, and there's not really great I mean yeah course there's loads you can do on a snare drum there's loads of rudiments that you can learn but i wasn't doing that i was just playing along to shawadi body or something so um i uh, and i eventually because i did pester and pester and i eventually got a drum kit at 13 and uh, pretty much taught myself then but it, 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 it was the aesthetic it was the look of it uh, first of all 
know. Yes. Well, that's interesting. So when did you start picking up on the sort of, I suppose, the indie music of these sort of 80s? Because I put indie down between the years of 83 to 87, which isn't completely watertight, but that was the years of the Smiths. Something kind of magical kind of happened during that period, as you kind of imagine. You know, we'd had the sort of punk scene, the post-punk scene. I mean, I know there's millions of other tribes like Two-Tone, Anarcho-Punk, Psychobilly, goth but you know there was for me you know when the smiths appeared and there'd been you two and and big country and people like that but suddenly there was this kind of five years of this like wow this is something a, a scene suddenly appeared i just wondered when you started getting kind of excited by the the kind of i don't know the enemy or john peel or anything like that it was, it was um i was lucky as well at school because i had a, a, um, a good bunch of mates who were into quite different music as well um and i used to love it back then as well from the 70s and early 80s just all the different crazes that you had all the different tribes you know that you would belong to you know it would be the goth um or the indie kid or the mod or the two-tone kid or the casual you know and you would and now it's all homogenized it's all everyone all just looks the same yes. um but um but it was it was certainly you two and the cults um, that side of it that I was into originally, but I, but I was always really, really into soul, 60s soul. Um, Dexter's Midnight Runners were a big band, The Jam, and Stuff Little Fingers and stuff like that. Um, but then it was, I was through my mates at school who were, um, who were into The Smiths and The Cure and New Order, Susie and the Banshees, and starting to listen to that. But to actually, so I was listening to it, and, I, and of course there was that great thing called the chart show. It was on um, on television on a Saturday morning as well, which is brilliant. Mm. And you'd always wish for the indie chart to be to, to be featured. Um, and then um, and then it was when I left home, and um, the the were, were were a big band as well. Infected album. Yes. Um, I really really took that to my heart, and that was actually the album that me and Nigel. Uh, the single of Dodgy that we bonded over. It's um he sort of joined the the proto Dodgy word called Dodgy we call four and um and the guitarist was into was into kind of glam rock and rock and stuff. Um but he asked me and I'm I was like two three years younger than him and he said what band do you like and I was like they're there infected and he went really Oh, and, and, he, and he was really surprised and he, you know, and so we sort of bonded over that and we, we sort of had respect for each other because it was such a great album, you know. Yes. Did, so, it have yeah. the, um, did it have the Beaten Generation on? Was it that one? No, no. Beaten Generation was the one with Johnny Marr, which was Dusk. Dusk. That was Dusk. That, that was a 90s album, but Infected was kind of like, I think that was like 86, 87. Right. God. But yes, he did write some amazing songs. I can't... Um... Yes, it all blurs, doesn't it? So by the, the sort of the late the late 80s then, you were sort of getting to that kind of latter part of your teenage years. Yeah, I'd, I'd left home, midnight, and moved out to London. Um, and, you know, Grebo was uh, a horrible <laughs> term, but <laughs> Grebo was, uh, was like the wonder stuff and Ned's Atomic Dustbin and, uh, and Populate Itself. Um, and... Um, all that kind of stuff was the crazy was the head. Have you got this? Grebo, there you go. Crazy head and gay bikers on acid. No, I don't. No. I wasn't into Grebo. I did probably because of the name. <laughs> um, but um, but that was happening in London at the time when we moved down there. Um, and of course, the Stone Roses, and that changed everything. 
So what about what about that other scene, which was the the my bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the face the the scene of shoegazing. Well, slightly. Shoegazing. Oh, the scene. Remember Lush? You know those sort of. Yeah, did they? Yeah, that 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 was happening as well. Chapter House, um, and Screwdriver. And uh, that was very, that was the indie scene in, in around Camden, uh, sort of pre-Bitpop times. It was all, um, yeah, Screwdriver, Lush, Chapter House, um, early Blur, which of course Seymour, Bangle Seymour. Mm. Um, and, and it was all that kind of stuff. So Jesus Jones was starting out as well. Um, but, but it was great because down in London, certainly, you had Gary Crowley's, uh, Gary Crowley on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, on GLR, BBC GLR, that was a great show. Uh, and of course, on television, you had stuff like, as I said, the chart show, but you had Rapido, uh, and you actually saw a lot of these acts on television, you know, and it wasn't the tube then, but you had other other sort of television programmes where you get acts going on and playing. And so, so, so it was quite rich uh, yeah. to hear this kind of music on the radio. Uh, but, but there's so much, there was so much around there was a lot of money around in the music industry uh, a lot of excitement around you know because they'd gone through the indie thing um and as i said they wonder stuff as well um i, I did like them their, their, their first album and um uh they were sort of poking their heads into the charts a little bit but as i said this um the whole attitude and look of the stone roses kind of that was a real precursor for the for, for what was to follow in the 90s Yes, my God, it suddenly became very, it all changed, didn't it? The John Major years. Um, so, so, when, so when you got the band together, did it sort of click quite smoothly? Did, did you? Um, well, well, me and Nigel moved down to London from Birmingham. Um, he, he, he made a real, quite big sacrifice. I, I kind of just left sixth form, so I was kind of, and I on what to do. My mum wanted me to go and get a degree, and but I, I didn't really get good A-level results. But Nigel, who at the time, as he said, he's got a few years older than me, he he'd gone quite far down the 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 the, the road of life in the sense that he had a mortgage, he had a car, he had a fiance, he had a good job at Austin Rover, which is what you did in Birmingham. You got a mm-hmm. job at the Rover, and um, and he said, "No, I'm going to give it all up." leave a job, sell my car, sell my house, and I want to go down to London because I really think we can make it. I really want to do it. And it was that decision of his to do that. And I was like, shit, really? Um, I've got, I've got to convince mom. Oh God. And then, then there was that job of trying to convince my mom over the next two months that that's what I was going to do. And she was dead against it. And I finally wore her down. And so me and Nigel moved down to London and um, yeah, didn't look back. Not one day did we ever think, this isn't going to happen. We just mm. we just had just real stupid belief that it was going to happen. Not because we had brilliant songs at the time. It's just we thought, yeah, it's going to happen. And we're enjoying ourselves so much anyway down there, you know, young and in London. And yes. then um, and went through different changes, different members, um, until Andy came along. Um, and um, it clicked. And with Andy coming along, within nine months we were signed. Uh, but by then we'd, we'd started to really start to find our sound a little bit and started to really crack on with the songwriting and, and, and sort of start to hone that craft, you know. Yes, because bands slightly in the early part of the 80s or even the mid part, you know, people could sign on quite easily and there was like the Enterprise Alliance and Job Seekers Alliance and all those sort of schemes that you could do. What was it like in the uh, kind of early 90s then? Could 
was was that an option that you, you know you could sign on for a little bit of time to we did to... we did yeah we, we, we signed on and uh uh but of course it's just not enough money you know um so we we, we took shit jobs on um building sites and, and i would yeah <laughs> I, I was doing loads of, i mean i i was always going out and working because a large would kind of be on the dole or, or getting housing benefit or whatever and he'd be at home uh, writing songs and getting stoned and uh, being very productive uh, and I would go out and either be you know working in a biscuit factory or um, working selling plastic bags to the queen or you know working in Harley Street Clinic and I was doing loads of different jobs around London and um, and just it was like <laughs> like a married couple he'd be at home he'd be at home except he'd be at home making the house dirty and messy. Mm. Um, but it was, yeah, it was 24-7, band, come home, rehearse, weekends, rehearse, we go out, and that was it, we didn't think, think about or do or want to do anything else. And how did it, how did it sort of get inside so easily, how did that happen, how did you manage to sort of navigate that little no- moment? Yeah, it's, well, it was so easy, what, what it was, we, um, in London at the time in the early 90s was a thing called pay to play. Um, which is, um, uh, we, I can understand it from a promoter's point of view, but it's pretty shit. Basically, uh, you would, um, if you wanted to play, for example, um, the Lady Owen Arms in Angel of Islington, which was a funny little pub, um, the promoter would give you 50 tickets, um, and it was up to you to go and sell those tickets to your friends and family uh, for whatever price you wanted to sell them for, and that would be your payment for the gig, uh, if you could sell those tickets. Um, and, yeah, and so we, we were like, hang on. We, we were living in sort of Hounslow West at the time, and we had to hire a van or, or get petrol or drive into London, and, and, and also we didn't know anyone. You know what I mean? We're from Burn. We didn't know anyone in London and we couldn't sell 50 tickets. So the whole idea of playing gigs in those days was to try and reach other people, you know. So pay to play, we thought, was a bit crap. So we um we set up our own our own club. You know, we, we were into bands like the Stones and the Who and inspired by what they did. They, they had their residences at Eel Pie or at the Marquee or whatever. And so we, we, had, we set up our own club, our own residency in Kingston. Which wasn't too far from Hounslow West, and also because Kingston had lots of colleges, they had a nurses' college, which was great, um, and Kingston Poly and other colleges, and so we just fly post, and, and we'd do a, we wouldn't advertise that the dodgy were playing. It was called the Dodgy Club, and we'd advertise all the bands that we were playing as a DJ, uh, you know, from all the the um, Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses to a lot of hip hop, to a lot of uh, 60s psych and Jimi Hendrix and The Who and um, and a lot of soul stuff, um, which was sort of what a lot of early Britpop was anyway. And if you listen to a lot of the early Britpop clubs, a lot of that was like Northern Soul and 60s Soul and uh, Garage stuff and whatever. So we were playing that and the kids came down to listen to the music and then we'd go on stage at 10 o'clock. And so we sort of, almost immediately built up a following around Kingston. Um, and um, our manager came down, saw that, and absolutely loved it. It was like, wow, you've got your own thing happening. And so um, and it, it just happened at the same time that we we just started writing better songs. And we wrote a song called Lovebirds, 
uh, which is on the first album, and that um, and that went on a demo, and that went around record companies. And back then, um, I probably still is the same thing, but um, you couldn't just sign a band because they were good. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, a guy called Ben Wardle, bless him, who's um, uh, I think he's an author now, and he signed some good bands. I think he might have signed uh, Cast or. She had seven or something. But um, he was working for London Records and our manager sort of slipped in the demo and said, I'm going to track into this. And he went, oh, I love it. I love it. And uh, and he took it to his um, A&R head and said, look, it's a new band called Dodgy. They're really good. And the head of A&R went, um, who else is after them? And he went, what do you mean? He goes, which other record labels are after them? And he goes, well, I've just got in there first. You know, they're really good. He goes, well, I'm not going to sign them if anyone else isn't after them because they needed that group Yes. They, they, they need. They couldn't trust their own judgment. They needed to know that other people wanted that band. And so, what this guy Ben Wardle did was um, did a copy of the tape and sent it out to other record companies and did our work for us. And of course, at our next show, we had six record companies turn up. And then there started to be a buzz about it. And uh, and we would get them down to the Dodger Club in Kingston, which is obviously a bit of a schlep. Um, it's it's not near, it's not central London, um, and we charge them double on the door, um, and and then a bus started happening, and it was just like that. It was just we met our manager, our, our, I, we had a little demo tape. This was before we wrote Lovebirds. We had a little demo tape, and and I just took it everywhere with me, and I would go to gigs, um, and I was determined that I'd have a couple of tapes on me, and by the end of the night, someone would have got a tape. Simple mm-hmm. as that. Just go out, just make sure someone gets a tape. Find out, oh, that's so-and-so, I'll give him a tape then. Um, and I just went out one night to um, to Dingwalls in Camden to watch Jesus Jones, and um, an early gig of Jesus Jones. And um, and I went up to the doorman, I said, yeah, the manager of the club said he wants my tape. And so he said, yeah, go in the office there. And I went into the office and they made it, get the fuck out. And obviously he was never near that. So I went <laughs> to the DJ and I said, yeah, mate, uh, I've got a tape for you. He goes, don't give it to me. Give it to that guy there. He's a manager. Um, and there were three guys stood in a row and they managed the Katie Dids um, and Mighty Airplanes, um, the Blue Airplanes and the White Lemon Drops. Um, and a few bands like that. And this one guy got the tape with our oh, cheers, pass it to his mate, who said cheers, and then pass it to the guy at the end, who was a bit drunk, so he put it in his pocket. And the next day, he woke up, went, what's his tape? Put it on, listened to it, then called us up. And it was that kind of knock. And he said, brilliant, you're not ready yet, but I really like it, let's stay in touch. Right. And this was... And a- that, that would have been 1990. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, and so this was your A and M connection. Andy Winters was our manager. You know, he was the guy who was in the C eighty six. As I said, he was managing a lot of indie bands, and um, yeah, he um, he he sort of said, you know, uh, keep at it. You're not ready yet, but keep going. Keep writing songs, um, and um, and we did. And we, as I said, we wrote this Lovebirds tune, and he said, right, that's the one. Let's get that on the demo, and let's. Um, Let's send that round. And because he knew a few people uh, in the music industry, but it's what it's all about. It's who you know. Yes. And, um, and that was it. And, uh, and away we go. Because you've got that perfect kind of almost a five, you've got more than the five-year narrative, but most bands from the 80s anyway have a bit of a five-year narrative. You know, they get together 
12 months, the honeymoon period, hopefully. And then they get the single, you know, John Peel plays it, a John Peel session, the first album, things going well. And then they often get another couple of albums quite soon after that. So your, your sort of first five years must have just gone by in an absolute blur of activity because you went from, from, you know, living with Nigel and uh, to suddenly three albums really quite quickly, didn't you? Plus playing full on. So you must have, the 90s, the John Major years, just must have been quite an ex- a heady time for you. Yeah, it's great. It was non stop. From 1990, 90, as soon as we got signed. Yes. Um, that was it. We released three albums, three singles on our own indie label uh, called Busting Records. And they were quite experimental, quite pushing the bar a little bit, just trying to find our feet. Um, and then uh, A&M, they took us for the first album and we signed to them. And uh, so, yeah, that came out in 93. Um, then the second, and then God knows how we did it. So that came out in 93, toured that, went around Europe a little bit, then started recording the second album, which came out in 94. Um, went around, toured that even further afield and then the third album came out in 96 so yeah it was quite quick considering nowadays our bands tend to take their time a little bit yeah yeah very very quick concession so and then by 98 we split up so So what's your memory between that first and second album because you know like you described the first one was it your as a sort of awkward cousin to the other two did did that um was that just a comment that you made that you, um, well, yes. just, we were finding our feet, you know, we, we had the songs, um, but uh, we went in with Ian Brodie and um, massive respect for Ian Brodie, the songs that he'd done, you know, the Cotterk and the Bunnymen and went with the Oscar works and, um, you know, countless bands that he'd worked with. And we loved his stuff that he'd done on his own records, the lightning scenes. Yeah. And, um, but he was very, he was very opinionated and very strong with his views on how he thought the record should sound, which may well have easily come from A&M as well, saying, look, we want this this to have a bit of a pop sheen to it, uh, to make it quite oppy and poppy, um, whilst, you know, we were loving the Velvet Underground. And we probably thought we were a bit more indie than we actually were. We probably thought we were a little bit darker than we actually were. Uh, and then, Ian, um, certain songs, I think, came out okay from that album you know and uh, the songs are great certain productions uh, you know you look back and go oh it's too polished or it's we didn't quite we didn't quite know what we were doing you know yes. and we took a, a lot of advice from me and Brody on certain things that um that I think by the time of our second album we were a lot more sure about about the sound that we wanted and we were better musicians much better because we didn't stop playing that's it we didn't stop writing we didn't stop playing um, and so by the time of the second album, we had loads of songs. Yes. So when you went into the studio to do those songs, did you have a feeling that, you know, what you had there, the 11, 11 tracks on the album, did you feel like you had something quite special at this time that, that's, you know, like, because they are very, you know, they are kind of not instantly, well, they're quite instantly catchy, aren't they? And, and they're kind of memorable and they capture a certain zeitgeist and a feeling. I just wondered if you'd, you also sensed that when you listened to them and rehearsed them a few times before. Is this Homegrown, the second Yes, Homegrown, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it was just effortless. It, it was great. You know, we had Hugh Jones on board because Ian Brody, we were going to go with Ian Brody again just again because we couldn't um 
we weren't, again, we weren't sure. We didn't know. We thought, okay, may as well, we'll get on with it. So we were going to go with Ian Brody for the second album as well. Um, but he said, no, I, I can't do it. I've got to focus on my own album um, because that's coming out. Um, and I've got to finish that and I'm not going to have the time. So Hugh Jones came on board and that was the best thing that could have happened to us because he was I, just different. He, he was different. He, he let the band breathe a bit more. Um, he, yeah, he brought us out of ourselves and, and allowed us to find out to find our sound and to find our confidence. And um, and as I said, we were better anyway. Yes. Um, uh, and yeah, we knew we knew we had a, some great tunes on there. We were really happy, and um, you know, we, we we had to stand out for the songs. Let me go far, Grassman, Melody's Haunt You, uh, making the most of. You know, we had a lot of great songs on that album, and and as I said it was effortless. There was no hassle, trouble, bother. Um, we had some great tours off the back of it around Europe. We played with Shed Seven, played with the Lightning Seeds, and our own little tour as well. Um, I think we went to Japan. Think I think we did. I can't remember. Went all around Europe anyway with the uh, with the cranberries as well. Um, they were playing like mega domes all around yes. Europe, and we, and we supported them, uh, which was not a bundle of laughs. And um, why was we, that? Um, just because they're not they're, they're nice enough. The boys are nice enough, but there's just no there was no fun. <laughs> there was no fun. There was no sort of shenanigans or fun or anything going on. It was just very very professional and boring. <laughs> um, and I remember after the first show we did in um oh actually I won't say because she's died, so I won't I won't, yeah, I, won't speak, no. I won't speak badly of the dead. So no, no, that's fair. No, I didn't, you know, I didn't want anything like that. But um yeah, because you do suddenly, you know, at this stage you do start to you start writing songs that become anthems, don't you, for for a generation who are gonna look back to their they kind of teen 20 period, you know, going to festivals. I mean, that, that that's quite a special thing to do, isn't it? Well, it, it was a special time because there were so many great bands around, you know. I mean, you know, it was that Britpop tag. Um, and it's a double-edged sword, it really is, because in a way, it's good that there was something you could hang a lot of that music on. Yes. Um, you know, because if you think about the, the noughties music with Arctic Monkeys and Franz Ferdinand, there isn't a name for all that, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but in the 90s, there's got a name for it. And so it's kind of handy for that, you know. But but a lot of the bands really weren't, you know, pulp to Supergrass to us, to the Charlatans, uh, to Blur, you know, there wasn't really, I suppose there was a shared love of 60s music, you know, that we all had. Um, but we didn't sound like each other. Super Fairy Animals are one of my favourite bands from that period. Um, but um, it, the one thing that, that people don't quite realise about that time, that, 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 that was a massive um, factor in the whole Britpop period, is Radio 1. Because um, uh, Matthew Bannister became the new head of Radio 1 yes. um, and, and cleared out all the old guard, all some baits, Dave Lee Travis, Gary <laughs> Davis, and all that shite, and, clear, and cleared it all out and brought in Zoe Ball, Chris Evans, da-da, Young, you know, rebranded it, a different logo, and along with the new DJs and the new look and everything, because he wanted to make it younger, that was the whole point, is that you had Simon Bates on it, sort of 10.30 on a, on a weekday morning doing our tune. And, our tune, and playing, yes. You know, it sounded like fucking Radio 2, and it, you know, it was Radio 1, it was bizarre. Um, these just old guys on there. Uh, yes. And it, it wasn't, you know, and they weren't 
they weren't hitting their remit, which is 16 to 25. And so that's what Matthew Bannister's job was. And um, and apart from the rebrand of the D, young DJs, he needed a sound to, to, to really brand his radio station. And boom, what was happening right at that time was Blur, Oasis, Dodgy, Buradlis, uh, Super Animals, blah, blah, blah. And he loved it. And so therefore, a lot of these bands were getting A-listed on Radio 1. And that's why you talked about anthems. And so that's why you, you don't really get an anthem without it being played on the radio lots. You know, that's what certainly back then makes it an anthem. And now you've got countless things that people can listen to music on. But back then, it was the radio, you know? Yeah. It was the radio and telly. Uh, and then you all indie clubs. Indie clubs, and then you go out and buy it. Yes. Um, the, but, but during the 90s, there was also that kind of... I know that the 70s and 80s had a lot of festivals. Well, not a lot, but they had those classic festivals. But the 90s, the festival really started to appear a lot more and had slightly changed suddenly the the glastonbury festival had got its act together after years of violence with the travelers and people like that and it became much more of a a newer generation came in and and the sound of it changed it wasn't going to be just van morrison and hawkwin and people like that it was going to be these kind of the new the yeah the the younger bands that you obviously need to get to get that demographic to keep a, a a brand or an event or anything any any business needs to have a new generation and glastonbury yeah. festival absolutely hit that and and that alongside you know radio one and also you've got to remember those shine camp compilations were incredibly useful at the time weren't they during the 90s you'd get these shine compilations that just came through and you went oh this is all very nice but it yeah, yeah. another load of bands that you thought oh right okay i've got another I don't know, 20 new bands I can listen to quite easily. Yeah. So, so the two things, and also there was a sense with the festival, I'll go back to the festival thing, but there was the levelers, there was sense that there was yourself, then there was Blur, there was Oasis. I mean, everybody was good at playing live, weren't they? And you, yeah. had, you had that kind of happy summertime vibe, didn't you? Smoking drugs in the summertime, it was great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that, that that I mean that was the thing. I mean, we uh, we love the festivals. You know, we we went to Reading in '91 or '92 and saw what that was all about. Um, then we got invited to play Glastonbury in '92, and that blew our minds. You know, first time we'd ever been to Glastonbury was when we were playing, and I couldn't believe it. You know, we're driving through with the the side door of the van open just driving through, looking at what was going on with the smoke and the fires and people just go, and it was not like anything I'd ever seen before in my life. And we, and we thought, yeah, this is it. We, we, we love this. And so we played Glastonbury countless times in the 90s and played Reading. And, of course, there was the Phoenix Festival. Yes. Uh, there, weren't, there weren't that many medium to big festivals, actually, in the 90s. There was really only Reading, um, um, Phoenix, Glastonbury, and then of course, Tea in the Park came in 1996, uh, and then more ones stuck to follow after that. But but really, you had little ones, municipal ones, um, but but big festivals. You didn't have that many, right? They were they were still developing, weren't they? At that yeah, point. Yeah. So what but was the, great. But what was the period like then, up to doing your third album, which was coming out towards the end of the John Major years before Team Tony took over. What was what was the atmosphere like with the band at that stage? Um, well, Stand Out for the Summer of Breaking Through. Um, not massive hit. It wasn't a crossover hit. It was like an indie hit. 
Um, but it had it had certainly kickstarted the sale the sales of homegrown, and so the record company started to take us a bit more seriously. I mean, they liked us, and they, you know, and they were always you know high on their agenda. But I think they realised, oh, hang on, we've got a really good band here. Um, and um, again, we we just were writing loads. We're out on the road all the time, but we're writing all the time. Nigel's writing all the time, and I was writing lyrics and um, and. Uh, and again, I just remember it being a happy time, you know, me and Andy were going out all the time. Nigel had a kid um, around about that time, 94, 95, so he wasn't going out as much. And he also meant that he wanted to record the album uh, in Stoke Newington, which is where we all lived, um, just so that he could nip home quick yes. to, see, to see the kid, which is great because it means we did it at Wessex Studio, which is a fantastic historic studio where The Clash um, recorded, The Sex Pistols recorded, Queen recorded. Um, oh, God knows, countless bands. Elton John recorded there. Um, and and we recorded there. And it was brilliant. It was just, just around the corner. And again, I remember being in that studio and just it'd been effortless. You know, and it, it just, we had the songs, we had the ambition. We just, you know, we were on fire. Yeah. And, and, and we loved it. So something happened in the 90s, quite a lot really, but there was one thing that suddenly lots of indie bands suddenly got a little string section, didn't they? I remember My yeah. Life Story had the string section, didn't they? And then suddenly the Manic Street Preachers had part of that string section. Everyone suddenly wanted strings. You you started developing a bit of a bigger sound as well, didn't you? On that third album, we, we really started. Well, the second album, we, got, we, we had... Um... Um, we got some girls in for for, for Grassman um, because yeah because the, the the songs that you you grew up listening to were not just guitar bass and drums you know no. um, they were lush you know I mean you know we loved the Beach Boys we loved Marvin Gaye um, you know we loved a lot of the orchestral stuff from the sixties and the psychedelic stuff and you know and um, yeah of course you want to as soon as you as soon as you say can I get some strings on that and the producer says yes you go fantastic let's have some <laughs> strings on it then you know um, because more than anything you want to see what it sounds like you want to see uh, you know an eight piece string section in the studio recording one of your songs it's like as an experience it's amazing um you know we didn't go we didn't go mad on it but certainly on that third album we got strings in we got a vibraphone player in uh we, we got we got, we got all sorts on there but um but it's great it's very eclectic that album you know we, we, we loved it for that reason but i don't think there's a duff track on it we, again it's a it's a, it's a belting album really love it so then what what sort of happens after after we had the 97 election and then the post, the, the break, the slight, you know, the falling of the band, because by then you, did you feel like at that time the band was still, you know, well and truly going to be there for a long time? You don't think about it. You don't think about it. And Nigel was getting a bit, he, he, he was getting a little bit unhappy with certain situations. Um, uh, and I think... And I think he was just trying different things out. I think he wanted to maybe do a couple of things by himself uh, and he felt a bit restricted and, you know, rash decisions were made. You know, we look back on it and, you know, of course you can look back on it and go, well, why don't we just say, no, just take a break. Six months, go and do what you want. You know, the band will survive. But, you know, it was always push, push, push. This is the next thing. This is the next thing. Um, 
you know, and then perhaps he felt a little bit claustrophobic by it all, you know, and, and he just felt, hang on, this isn't what I wanted. And um, and that's it. And, and he felt that he could go and do some stuff by himself. Um, and um, yeah, and we didn't handle it that well. We, we could have, we could have handled it better if we were a bit more mature, uh, but you, I just didn't see it coming. You know, and um, and yeah, and so that was it. And I just left the band, and and me and Andy were quite a bit bitter and angry about that. And we limped on with um, a different lineup. Uh, I called it the pantomime double. I called it the pantomime dodgy now because it wasn't quite the the real dodgy. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and that was it. It was a real shame. But then again, I do wonder how we'd have fared in, in the late nineties because. Music suddenly got really up its own ass. <laughs> music got very, very serious and pretentious, you know? Um, even though there's a lot of those music I do love, you know, I love Radiohead and, you know, some of those tracks from The Verve and stuff, but it got it just all a bit faced and pretentious and serious. And I don't know how we'd have fared. I don't know. I don't know how, well, you know, we'd have had to change or whatever. So I don't know. No, we, we enjoyed it while it lasted. Yeah, well, it's, I don't know, I don't know how, I mean, it's the most tricky one, isn't it? How do you reinvent yourself? I mean, David Bowie, you know, did yeah, lots wonderful. of it, and and obviously some of it worked and some of it didn't, and obviously now we all look back and say it was all wonderful, but no one thought when they heard Low, oh, that's a fantastic album, David, this is going to be your best album of all time. They went, oh my God, you've completely lost the plot. Just yeah, yeah, up, yeah. you know, so so yeah, everyone, yeah, yeah. everyone's wise after the event, but it's of course, it yeah. very it must be very tricky, especially your own emotional journey as well as everything that's going around you and trying to work out can you release that album that's going to sell, as David Bowie said, you know, like three copies, you know, and one to your grandmother. So it's kind of you know dealing with that and then saying no, that's fine, I can cope. We'll come back with another one. It's tricky. So during that that not the lost years because you obviously were still in the band did you then sort of how did the the next part of your life and career develop after you know the, the sort of late 90s and into the o years or naughty uh, well we, we, as i said we got a new lineup with dodgy um and i could feel early on that that wasn't quite right. We we got some really interesting songs and and there were some good chaps in the band, but I I I, I sort of thinking you know, this this don't feel right, you know, um and um but I was determined to at least get a a document from those times. So we got an album out of it called Real Estate, and there's some there's some a couple of really good tracks on there, but it, it wasn't dodgy. If anything, we should have called ourselves something different, um and then tried it that way, but. You get advice from all different places and, you know, um, and it's that thing, you know, hindsight, you look back and go, well, what I should have done is just taken some time out and had a little bit of a think and see what's out there. But, you know, you're rushing in and go, no, let's strike while the iron's hot because people want a new dodgy record. And yes. They didn't. I know. They, didn't. they didn't. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, then I went to managing bands. Um uh, yeah, I managed a few bands, I had a bit of success over in Europe, and uh, and I played with uh, some bands. I played with Electric Suparade. Um, I played with the Lightning Seeds for about three years. Um, I played with Ian McNabb um, and the Article Works. Um, I had a couple of gigs with Gene uh, when Matt the Hat wanted to go and play some music. So I, I sort of kept the hand in playing. I played Electric Software for quite a few years. 
uh, that was good fun. We did America a couple of times, which is what I'd never done with Dodgy. Uh, Dodgy had never gone. We played New York, but we'd never toured America. Uh, and I did that a couple of times with the Electric Soft Parade, and that was good fun. Um, yeah, so that kind of kept me going throughout the 90s. Um, sorry, about the the, the, um, the noughties. Yes. And then, and then we were um, they weren't asked to reform. And what was it like? I mean, did you have a bit of a moment where you thought, blimey, we haven't seen each other for a few years did did you have to sort of have some i know yeah i just wanted to do how do what how does that sort of moment happen it was it was our, our lighting guy called a guy called andy moore who was from manchester and we loved him he's a funny guy very very dry um and um he was kind of heartbroken that the band had split up um and um he was dying he had a, he had a tumor and um oh, and he had and what he did he had a very smartly, he had a testimonial whilst he was still alive. He had a almost a, a wake whilst he was still alive. He knew he was dying, yes. but he thought, "Well, no, I'm going to have a party, you know, and, and have a fundraiser for my family whilst I'm still alive." And um, and the bastard sort of he can't really <laughs> say no to that. And so he asked me yes. and Nige separately and said, "Come on, come to my thing. Uh, I'm dying. What are you going to do?" So we were like, "Shit!" And um, so me and Nige turned up. And um, yeah, and sort of broke the bread a little bit. And um, we got on stage and played Stand Out for the summer, uh, just me and him. Uh, I think someone else might have joined, jumped up and played bass. Um, but we um, but we did that, and from that point onwards, you know, um, you know, the, the the ice has started to melt, and we started to look at each other. And then offers started coming in, um, saying, "Look, do, do you want to do a?" a reunion tour and yeah, when you're talking about like the sonic youth signed to a major and that was like a a big thing um throughout the the noughties and, and the 90s the, the whole idea of reforming a band again was looked down upon um you know because the clash would never have done that and uh you know all these bands would never have done that would never have reformed until the Pixies did it. <laughs> and then the Pixies did it. And that was kind of a bit like that Sonic Youth moment that they were like, oh, well, fuck it. If the Pixies are doing it, um, then we will, then we'll do it. So that was kind of, then other bands started reforming. And then it wasn't such a, it wasn't looked down on so much then. So we, um, yeah, we booked a tour and the, 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 the day before the tour uh, was about to kick off, Andy fell out of bed and broke his arm. <laughs> <laughs> Swat. Yes. Um, so he broke his arm. So that had to be rescheduled until the following year. Um, but by then we'd we'd kind of, you know, we realised it was unfinished business and we wanted to carry on. Yes. And um, maybe do some new music. Did you? I mean, I guess you probably saw that documentary on you know bands reforming, um, probably on BBC Four on a Friday night. And um, you know there was various success stories or not success stories. Did you ever sort of feel that you could have done with band therapy during that that early period of the of your life? You know, the chapter one, so to speak. Well, of the first dodgy throughout the nineties. Yes, you know when you were you know was there things that you thought yeah we could have had some band therapy. Band therapy, never even thought about it. Never even thought about band therapy was a pile of Guinness in the pub, you know, that's when we sit down. But no, yeah, absolutely. Um I I I would have loved to have someone come up to me and give me some advice when Nigel was clearly upset, clearly not happy, and and give me some advice and say to Nigel, yeah, look, man, just take some time out, take as much time as you need, do whatever, let's not split the band up. 
because we've spent all this time doing this and building this up and it's a special thing let's not split the band up you go and do what you need to do and I, that's what should have been said and that kind of attitude instead of what are you leaving for and Bleh, you know but there was a lot of um you know a lot of stupid stuff said uh but you, you can look back can't you and uh hindsight's a wonderful thing Yes. So do you, I mean, when you get back together after those years and there's some sort of stuff that you think, should I say it, should I not? Do you, do you eventually sort of sit there and say, look, can I just explain a few things and sit around and sort of just clear the air and think, fine, let's move on now. Does that, does that happen with a band? Yeah, not, not immediately though. You know, not immediately. It's, you know, the most important thing is that you work on your relationships and making sure that you're getting on. Um, there was still a little bit of um, frostiness from certain members towards other members, and you know, but which would thaw over time, you know, you'd, you'd have a drink and things would thaw out. Uh, but what was really cathartic for us was an album that we recorded in 2010, uh, 2011, called Stand Up Right in a Cool Place. Um, and we did that in Nigel's studio in, in uh, near the Malvins. Um, and it was during the summer recordings with Beautiful and Views and Lovely. And, and that was essentially just the three of us uh, with an engineer that, that, that we knew called Robin. Um, and that was it. It was just the three of us really exploring and getting to know each other again and really, really encouraging each other, you know, and really having patience with each other and really wanting to get the best out of each other. Um, and, you know, compromising and helping, and and uh, and you can really hear it on that record. And I think uh, it's a lot of fans' favorite record. They they love that album because you can hear it's the three of us. You know, because always in all the records, we'd always have a keyboard player and we'd have a producer and an engineer, and there'd be a little gang in the studio. You know, but by now it was just pretty much the three of us, um, and you can hear that. And so that's where that was a real cathartic exercise for us. I think. Yes, well, quite. And did it did it feel at that stage with the, with the sort of the band and the dynamic that you you could see it was more important than just some sort of frivolous thing that happened back in the nineties that you actually you wanted to keep it part of your life? Yeah, yeah, because it's unfinished business. You know, we think, hang on, this was good. You know, and it's silly that we split up and we shouldn't have split up. And and so we did that album and we toured that and then we did get another member in the band who really helped out because he was a foil for all of us. We all got on with him, who's still in the band, a guy called Stu, plays bass. And um, and then we recorded another album uh, a few years later, uh, What We're Fighting For. And um, yeah, and since then it's it's been tours, um, festival appearances, and um, yeah, and our bond has grown stronger. I mean, we did a, a little gig the other night uh, at Rough Trade East because we've got a box set um, coming out on Demon Records, um, which uh, they put together, which is lovely, looks yes. lovely. And, and um, yeah, we did a little acoustic session and a question and answer session um, at Rough Trade, and it was really quite emotional. It was lovely, you know, to, to, to look back, sort of an enforced... Um, trawl through our history and to talk about stuff and it was nice and it got quite emotional on stage just and just realizing how you know we've known each other for well me and I've known each other for like 35 years and Andy um 32 years or something you know it's ridiculous that is a that's a lot of time isn't it really does yeah. it, I mean does that feel quite nice when you bump into other bands who'd also was part of your kind of scene so to speak you know who have gone through a similar period and similar stories and you kind of 
do you have those conversations with a few other members occasionally just going blimey you know but there we were it was all going well then it all goes terrible now we're back again does do, yeah, yeah. do, do you have those conversations with fellow band ma mates uh, what from other bands? From other bands, yes. That's from other it. bands, yeah. Um, yeah, when we see them, I mean, it's um, you know, to, to to sort of look back on those times. I mean, certain bands we we were a little bit closer to, just purely because a the Blue Tones we they they moved into our house um, when we moved out, um, and so we helped get them signed. Well, helped them sort of form the blue tones we sort of found a drummer and for them and whatnot and so we were quite close to them in the early days um and shed seven we went out on various tours with them um and they're good boys and we um yeah it's it, it's a survival thing isn't it it's uh you know looking back and uh and it's don't, don't, i mean there's those kids that we do called shine on as well which i think are a little bit based on the shine albums and um they happen down in minehead in Butlins, and yes. they're always good. They're always good for a little chin wag and um, see how everyone is, you know. So, when did you think, okay, this is great, but I do need to get a day job? Did you did you sort of have a moment, you know, away from music that you thought I need to do something else? I always had a, a, a sort of hunkering, just a yeah. I don't know. There was some kind of clock inside me, and I thought I just love just a bit of normality. You know, when you're stuck on a tour bus between Dortmund and Munich and, you know, it sounds glamorous and, yeah, it can be. And, and you go back home and then you've got two days before you've got to go out again or got to go into the studio or do a TV show or do this or do that or go into the studio. And and it's it's kind of non-stop in that sense. And it's and it's kind of, you know, you're always living on evenings as well. You're always... Um, you're always um, uh, out, you're always out and about and doing stuff, and it's not. And you do crave just a bit of normality, that, and um, not so much that I wanted to leave the band for it. But in the in the noughties again, when um, well, it was it was it was yeah, what do you call it? The teens, the um, the the twenty tens. The twenty yes, um, it is the teens. Yes, I didn't like the noughties, the teen teens. The teens. It's there. It's then when um, you know, dodgy were playing you know we're doing festivals and doing bits of bobs and obviously we still had a roaches coming in but it kind of wasn't enough really i did um you know family and whatnot and you just think not quite enough so you've got to supplement your income a little bit um as it does as a lot of bands do nowadays you know um and that was it it was like a mixture of like yeah i need to sort of try some just new challenges yes know? new challenges uh, I, I did an MA in, um, in radio production in 2010, which was really good. Um, and that, that was really interesting. That opened my eyes a little bit and, and certain things came from that. And then, yeah, and then um, I kind of fell into teaching in a, in, in a school for kids with emotional and behavioural difficulties. Uh, and I say as a joke that um, being in Dodgy for 30 years has certainly given me a, a unique skill set of... Uh, dealing with people with emotional behavioural difficulties, you know. Yes, that's good. <laughs> yeah, God. Could, could your, your current self, would, would you be able to recognise your younger self? I often do think about this, you know, because I would love to have met myself back in, um, back in 1989 and 1990, just to, because I just had this brazen belief 
this brazen, I won't call it ambition. It was just we never doubted ourselves, you know. Yes. Even when we weren't writing the best songs, we thought they were the best songs at the time. And never once did me and Nice look at each other and go, oh, shit, this is really hard. It's not going to work, is it? Because every step was just a next step up. You know, moving forward, moving on. So I'd like to have met myself back then just to see, you cocky little fucker. You know, what gives I, you the confidence, what confidence to do that? I think the younger self, if, if you got that moment, you know, you, there's a sort of ambition and naivety and arrogance, isn't there? There's, they, but you can't, you can't fake those things. You've either got it or you haven't. And, you know, you kind of have that sort of arrogance and confidence and naivety because the minute you kind of question it, you, oh, it's gone, forget it. Or no, you absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, it absolutely. is. It, it's quite a special moment, but you can't. So, what, you know, during the lockdown period, did, you, did the band or yourself creatively, did, did you sort of find yourselves thinking, look, we're going to have to start working on some other project because this, this could drive us all a bit nuts? And also... Um, uh, I, and Andy really got into art. Um, he was doing a lot of painting, a lot of art, which is really good uh, for him. Um, Nigel was doing the lockdown um, basement club, the lockdown sessions, which is, is um, he would go online every week and yes. um, Facebook Live and do a little gig from his basement. And, uh, and that really kept him grounded and, and that was really good. Um, but there's not a lot you can do. I mean, we looked at different... Um, sort of apps and devices and websites where you could maybe try and rehearse together um, at the same time, but you can't. There's no. always a slight, there's always a slight lag. Um, uh, you know, I think some people may have achieved it. I mean, like whenever you saw um, that, the sort of compilation of a band all playing together, uh, given the impression that they were, they weren't. They would have pre-recorded each each section and then added onto it because, unfortunately, there is just that lag that means you can't quite play in time. Yes. Uh, so we so yeah, we just waited. You know, we waited and waited, and that's fine. Yes. So what's, your, what's your schedule next and for the next 12, 24 months? We've got we've got some nice gigs coming up in the summer. We've got some festivals coming up. Um, if you go to dodgyology.com, you'll see a list of gigs there. Um, yeah, festivals. Um, our agent is saying that he's putting together some dates for November um, for a little tour, which would be nice. Um, and at some point, because um, lockdown took it away from us, we were going to be celebrating 25 years of Free Peace Suite. That was supposed to be last year. Um, but of course, that couldn't happen. Um, so at some point, we are going to be doing an anniversary tour of Free Peace Week. We want to anyway. We don't know if it's going to be the 28th. <laughs> it doesn't quite have the same ring. But maybe we'll do the 30th, I don't know, or the 25 plus 3, I don't know. But we, that's at some point, you know, uh, down the line. Yes. Um, and we would love to do another album, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's saps a lot of resources saps a lot of time and saps a lot of money and um if people want to give us a load of money then we'd love to go and make an album go over to spain or somewhere and go and make an album um but you find that it, you put a lot of effort into an album a lot of effort and the rewards not financially um not talking about that that never really was the, the point just you you want to see it last you want to see it have a a tail, as they call it. You want to see yes. it kind of reverberate and, 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 and have an effect. 
And but albums nowadays they get released and phew, next day they're gone. And um and that's 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 hard. That's hard to take. It's it's not good. It's not good for you to 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 spend you know, two two years of writing songs and then recording and demoing and and you know, taking all that time to do it for it to just go eh boom. Um, yes, um, yeah, so we, you know, um, we'll never we'll never say never, but but, but we'll see what we'll see what turns up. Yes, and obviously keeping the you know the live work going means that you're always going to be attracting new new audiences, aren't you? Because obviously, you know, people. You know, I found, you know, doing this show, there's like a, there's a sort of a period like 25, 30 years where you do something and you think, yeah, that's fine. You take it for granted. And then suddenly, not with rose tinted sunglasses, but you just think, oh, that's quite interesting. I've, I, you know, I haven't looked at it. Something's changed. You know, I'd noticed that there's been a lot of books written from that period, the 90s, and especially the 80s. And then there's been lots of photographic books from, you know, even longer, you know, the late 70s and 80s. And I think people had these photos or negatives and went, yeah, no one's interested. But now it's like, oh my God, that's incredible document. So I think people will keep on discovering stuff as, as you know, the years and decades go by, because it's like a bit, of, a bit of a curiosity, but probably a few years after the kind of Britpop episode, you know, you probably weren't, at all in you know in vogue so to speak but now people look back and go yeah that was quite a special period and look at all those different bands you know because there was such a variety and the same happened with the 80s in a way you know I'm sure most people think who cares you know but now you look and think oh there's you know John Peel you had the NME Melody Maker Sounds every every town and city had an indie club didn't they and it was the same in the 90s oh yeah you had that circuit and you think, oh yeah, that was quite interesting. I didn't really think of that at the time. I didn't really appreciate it. No, absolutely. And I was talking to a chap the other night from, from the record label, from Demon Records, and he said, you know, back in the 90s, um, you know, the 90s is as far away as the 60s was to us in the 90s. You know, it's, it's, it's bizarre when you start thinking about that, the timeline of, uh, of things. And, you know, it's back in, you know, the start of the 90s, um, you had, it was like 35, 35, 40 years of recorded music, you know, going back to like 1950, 1940. Yes. Um, now you've got 60, 70 years of, of recorded music. There's so much out there, you know, it's ridiculous. And, um, and, you know, I, I see how my son, who's 22, how he, accesses music is is totally different to how I would you know when I was his age you know it would be it will be Spotify and then he'll listen and he'll listen to a track and he'll know everything about a band from three tracks and but he'll know so many different bands and so many different eras and uh you know it's rare that kids nowadays do get into a whole album as a as a piece of art you know yes it's, um it's, it's moved on from then you know? It's barely moved on. So, look, last question then: if you if you could have whispered something in your sixteen year old's ear, you know, at that point in life, or 18, 16, say, is there anything you know with the the experience and the wisdom that you've had, grown, developed over the late you know the decades? Is there something that you would have just kind of thought, God, yeah, that would have been a good bit of advice or encouragement or anything like that? Uh, yeah, don't listen to your mum. Go down to London and join <laughs> and, and, and join that band with Nigel. But but no, as I said, if I could go back to any point in life and give some advice back, I'd go back to ninety seven, ninety eight, and um, you know, have a word with myself back then and say, "Listen, Math, there's another way you can do this." 
You know, you can, uh, the band doesn't need to split up. Um, just just take time, you know, take more of a control of the situation and, and just go, hang on, that's fine. You go do what you want to do. And maybe things would have been different there. Yes. So, um, you know, it's not a regret because, you know, things happen for the best in different ways. But but I think that's the one bit of advice I would give to myself back then is like, come on, mate, you know, you can do things differently. Yes, I know. Anyway, that's good. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. This has thank been you. amazing. And um, if you want, I can always give you the, the link and then you could, you know, use it elsewhere. And um, Yes, that- please do. When it's all done, send it through and I'll put it up on the socials. I will. But look, thanks again and have a great week. And, um, and, and March, March is tomorrow. Anyway, take care and have a lovely evening. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, uh, was me, just in case you didn't know, in conversation with Matt Priest from Dodgy, the drummer. And um, yes, I think you've you've heard everything you want to and probably more besides. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. You'll find it somewhere lurking. And also, all these interviews have been archived. Lucky you. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Podbean, that's the one. Um, Yeah, so anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.